This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. The modern economy requires digital infrastructure. Another way to say that is everything you do on your phone or your device requires a data center. The modern world doesn't exist without these connected, global, amazing facilities and all of the people and systems that support them. Think about that. Building that right is a tremendous responsibility. Dean Nelson is one of the pioneers of digital infrastructure, and he's at the forefront of efforts to build a better, more sustainable digital future. Dean has worked for Sun Microsystems, Uber, eBay, Microsoft, and he's currently the CEO of Cato, which is a low-cost, carbon-free compute platform. He joins me this week to delve into some of the most pressing issues facing the modern economy, from the changing nature of work to the rise of AI and automation. We discuss the critical role of digital infrastructure in building a more sustainable future and our responsibilities to each other as we move forward. So whether you're a tech professional, an advocate for sustainability, or just curious about the latest developments in the modern economy, this conversation's for you. So please sit back and enjoy Dean Nelson. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Dean, for people who don't know who you are, I know who you are, and I'm an admirer. How? Tell us a little bit about your journey through the digital infrastructure world. Yeah, I'll give you a quick summary. Um, okay. I have uh, I started in digital infrastructure on my 21st birthday. So I've been doing this for 33 years now, right? So I started at Sun Microsystems back in the day, and it was uh-huh. I was on the manufacturing line doing component level debug. They hired uh-huh. me right out of uh, a trade school, DeVry. And uh-huh. so I did 17 years at Sun Microsystems, two different stints. And in the middle of that, I was at a company called Allegro Networks. So my first startup experience, and that was 2000 to 2003. Um, amazing, amazing, uh, lost years of my life, but it was amazing <laughs> to yeah. do that first startup kind of perception of what goes on in the industry broadened my horizons. So when I came back to Sun and did my second stint, it was uh, I had a lot more focus on what what is happening outside, mm. right, and how we drive things. And so um, I left Sun uh, in 2009 and went over to eBay. And uh, this is when it was eBay Inc. So I ran uh, Global Foundation Services. So data center, hardware, network, storage, um, the supply chain, budget management, orchestration, you know, all those pieces for the foundational pieces of infrastructure. So I own the underlying engine. Mm. Okay, so that was for for eBay and PayPal and StubHub and the 13 other entities that we had acquired over the time. Um, We did a bunch of integrations. We put uh, PayPal and eBay together. And then that took 15 months. And then we tore them apart and created two separate companies, separated that. That was quite an experience. Um, I left in uh, 2016. Uh, took a quick uh, break with my uh, daughter to go find a college for her, which was awesome. I spent six months doing that. And then I joined uh, Uber and started that uh, rocket ship. That was three years of um, growth and hyperscale, right? Um, loved it. Uh, I left on my 51st birthday. Mm. I did 30 years exactly in the industry when it came down to on the buying side. So I drove uh, $10 billion worth of infrastructure projects across three continents. Um, it was great. Like I always say, I'm spending other people's money, but trying to drive efficiencies and you know productivity and things within within digital infrastructure. Then I started doing advisory work, joining boards, uh, and that's what I've been doing ever since. One of those was uh, the company that I'm a CEO of now called Cato, and so Cato is doing low cost, carbon free um, 
compute globally. Mm. So also within all of that, um, I'm a big community guy. So uh, I started a, a group called Data Center Pulse back at Sun Microsystems. And that grew really fast, right? In between uh, eBay and Uber, um, I realized that I had lost touch with that community, but I wanted to broaden it. So we created Infrastructure Masons. And that's a professional association of the builders of the digital age. That's you, me, and everybody else mm -hmm. in our industry that makes this, this thing happen. And um, that has grown wildly over the last uh, the last couple of years uh, with just a huge number of companies and people that are really passionate about what we're doing in digital infrastructure because it really does, it's the underpinning of the world, mm. the engine that we have, that we build, that we operate. A small set of the global population enables the rest of the world to function. So we have a big responsibility in that and doing that from a economic, social, and also societal way, right? Sustainably. Um, there's just a lot of things that we can do together that are more powerful than we would individually. Man, there's so much there. I, I We're going to come back. I put a pin in it. Uh, I learned that in a, ch a kid's cartoon. Put a pin in it. <laughs> um, I want to come back to something you said in the very beginning about how you went to school at DeVry, a trade school. Mm -hmm. There are so many conversations right now where this question is not so much no college, it's the trades need people. How, how incredible that you went to a trade school. Why did, why did you do that right out of the gate instead of uh, you know a, a four-year college route? Or in my um, case, a 10-year college route. <laughs> what what's interesting in, in my choices is that you know when i got out of high school i'm like i i'm smart i can go back and do this i can go get a job i can make money so just that naive youth mm. um that you know i really don't need any other education i can do that and and i didn't have um others in my family that had actually gone to college and graduated so i didn't really have any role models on that side mm. um they were entrepreneurs they built businesses they did their things independently and they did it with blood sweat and tears right right so i did that for a year um and <laughs> realized I'm not making any money. I, I worked at a company called Manpower mm. and um, Manpower did all the odd jobs. So you, you call up and you get a person, they come and do things. And I, I was doing the jobs no one else wanted to do. Very committed, did it, right? But I was making zero money. I, it was just, I realized like, this can't be it. It can't be. So talked with my dad and he said, you know, you, you're really good at electronics. You should, you consider that. Like you aced all the classes in high school because that, that came naturally, like mm -hmm. how the, how the systems worked and all that. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, then I, I went and looked at a trade school. My mom and I drove down to Phoenix, saw it. I'm like, yeah, this is great. So I did a two-year associate's degree in electronics and Sun Microsystems hired half my graduating class right out of Phoenix. Yeah. And then I went to Silicon Valley and didn't know what Silicon Valley was. Like it was just, it was such a whole nother world, like the expansion of, you know, this little, I, I grew up in Colorado. So my little pocket in the Midwest, you know, just... Mm -hmm think of the world was as big as that until you start getting out and start doing more. And um, so I'm glad for that experience that allowed me to go back and say, there's more to life here that I should really think about. And, uh, and again, my parents to, to supporting what that was. Um, and then finally is to Sun Microsystems. I, I always say I went to the University of Sun. Right. Culture, engineering, leadership, business, challenge, conflict, like all those things. It was such a great culture. 
you know, I, I got lucky to be able to be in a company like that, right? For 17 years, two different stints and learn so many things that I still apply to this day. It's such a cool thing. It reminds me, my dad was in the Air Force. He left high school or got out of high school, went straight into the Air Force uh, into an electronics program, did not go to college. When he got out of the Air Force, IBM did kind of what son did. So that was the Air Force was his DeVry. And IBM was desperate for people in mm -hmm. 1960 or whenever it was and said, hey, would you come? And he started in San Jose right off of, you know, started at a bench right off of a bench from the Air Force. <laughs> they just gave him such a great opportunity. He later spent 20-something years on the shuttle and another 10 or 12 years at Space Station and all these love other it. things. And I just love these stories because, I, again, I'm all, I want my brain surgeon to have gone through college and done all the things and all the residencies and but not everybody has to follow that path. And in the world mm -hmm. of supply chain challenges with people and opportunity, if you can do a trade that makes sense in building out, in this case, digital infrastructure, go do it. You can become a Dean Nelson or you can become one of these other people that um, can make a great life for themselves and for the world. There's, there's another aspect of that that um, is repeating. So if you think about what IBM and Sun did is they needed talent. It's an influx of these people that need to understand back then, which was just basic computing, the birth of the internet, right? There's a whole bunch of things that they needed to fuel because of the demand and the way that, you know, the pace of adoption of technology was, uh, was happening. And um, if you look now, one of our biggest challenges in our industry, and I'm saying for digital infrastructure, mm -hmm. think of the foundational parts, everything I stacked up in the you know data center, hardware, network, supply chain, orchestration, all those pieces. Um, we, we have a talent shortage. And it's not that we don't have talented people. We have 40% of our workforce is graying out, mm. like you and me, right? Yeah. yeah. There isn't a pipeline. And so when you think about, you know, the traditional recruiting thing is, let me go find the, you know, the top 10 colleges, the, right, the Ivy League schools, et cetera, to go with the best talent. The thing is that there's talent everywhere. Mm. And hence what you were saying, there are these diamonds in the rough or these people that have trade aspects or aspirations or skills of just persistence, curiosity, understanding that can take a problem, break it down, understand it and move the ball forward. Those people, right, are everywhere. And so broadening the net to be able to attract them in, there's two problems we have right now. We have the best known industry that no one knows about. Right. First, right? <laughs> so we need to be able to share with people what this is. And like you said, there's very rewarding and lucrative careers available in infrastructure. Just people don't know about those roles. Second is there is no pipeline. Like if you think about the programs that are at the colleges, universities, trade schools, certification programs and all that, they're very, very narrow when it comes down to digital infrastructure. And I'm saying that as, an, as a vertical. Mm. Digital infrastructure to me is every element that builds up that foundational element so that computer science, application developers, like all of them can do something with this engine. But the engine has to be built. And that mm. engine is data centers and compute and network, right, all over the world and all the supporting elements that make that thing run. That's our industry. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, we are we have such massive influence on the world, but people don't know that. So we need to we need to change these two dynamics, which is we need to have people understand our industry so that they can be attracted to it. And then we also need to change the pipeline to say we want it from all tunnels here. 
-hmm. all of those different paths. So we should be going to trade schools. We should go into high schools. We should be giving postgraduate certificates. Like all of those things need to be in place so that we can actually have those people coming in. And then the other one is even with that, think of the millions of jobs that need to be filled over the next X amount of years. We don't have enough people in the right places for the work that's going on. So we need people that can actually manage AI, digital labor, because there's other things that are going to be done here, not just automation, like mm -hmm. cognitive, capable, digital colleagues mm -hmm. that allow you to do a bunch of different things with infrastructure and scale. Mm -hmm. Because without it, we just literally won't have enough people in the right place to be able to support the things that are happening. The physical elements have to happen. The logical elements, the virtual elements, we should be automating and assigning with digital colleagues wherever possible. How do you get out often to, um, besides the community that you've built to uh, help proselytize this message? Everywhere I go. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's, you know, at a Christmas party and having conversations with people. Um, uh, I was just at uh, uh, AT&T, uh, you know, the Pro-Am mm -hmm. yeah. uh, a weekend ago. And um, and I met, um, uh, there's an executive from Oracle and his wife was there. And so she's a, an, an Iranian national. And so she does all of this stuff for the community. And she said, it's so difficult with, you know, what's going on in Iran and the, the challenges for the people. And we're looking for ways to go back and get them scholarships and help out with these things. And I'm sitting there listening, going, there's talent right there. Like, right. there's a pipeline. So I said, we have a scholarship program. She goes, oh, for what? And I said, Yes, <laughs> right. we've got 23 different programs across this and um, it's open. And right now we have more money than applicants. Right. And her eyes just lit up. She said, wait, so my people can, I said, absolutely. Right. We want all people who are interested in actually driving into our industry to come do that. And we'll pay for their scholarships to get them trained. But, yeah. you know, think about like a certificate program from a CNET or a DCD Pro or, a, you know, something like that. In two weeks, you can get a crash course to understand the basics around data centers, infrastructure, those types of things. We should be doing those all day, every day. Because then you got companies like QTS and a whole bunch of others that say, cool, you're a veteran, right? Or you've taken the certificate program or come on in. We've got on-the-job real-time training that's going to be very, very effective. And then they also have their own programs that can help them get additional education. The whole point is, how do we get this pipeline in? But I'm advocating everywhere I go because I'm very passionate about our industry. I love my job. I love what we do. And I, I know the impact that we all have as a community on the world. We know our place in it. We know what we should be able to, to drive. And if if we can find more of those connections, because our our members in Infrastructure Masons, it's, it's um, a professional association, right? We leave our companies at the door. It's about the individuals. And those individuals come in and we work together on four strategic things. Diversity and inclusion, education, sustainability, and technology. Cool. Well, the whole point is those people are what make this thing work. And we keep continuity. We don't care what your job is, where you worked, where you're working now, a transition. It's about you and the community and your contributions to the community. And so that's one of the things I'm probably most proud of is, is the, the community we've built up here and the impact that we're having broader than just technology. Right. Technology is a tool to enable us to do what? Make impact in the world for both the planet and the people that operate in it. Right. I struggle sometimes to communicate how important digital infrastructure is. When, when we say infrastructure, 
usually what I get is some kind of reaction, like, you mean like bridges and roads? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, but think about for a second, um, let me, let me, I'm going to make a point here in a minute, but bridges and roads until a country has the ability back a hundred years ago, physically for bridges and roads to enhance commerce, Mm -hmm. um, we had 50 little nation states, essentially. Once we, we had the contractual language around that and the opportunity between our, our bridges and roads and railroads and the infrastructure, all of a sudden then I could leverage resources around, uh, in our case, our country, our North American continent, and I could ship from either coast. I could produce all over the place. Like it accelerated along with our command and control through our communication networks and a, um, and, and a type of government that facilitated, had regulation, but not um, overwhelming regulation. So it created this perfect storm mm-hmm. that allowed us to take advantage of so many things that were here. Well, the digital infrastructure is very similar to that in that it facilitates um, opportunities for the whole world. Like, like you. Wouldn't you want to be part of that? And if you are part of it, and we're going to talk about some power and some other environmental things in a little bit, but just imagine if you could be part of that, that infrastructure is going to be built with you or without you, one way or the other. Wouldn't you want to influence your diversity and inclusion ideas? Wouldn't you want to influence um, the resource consumption? Wouldn't you want to um, influence the... um, like when we say digital infrastructure, we're also talking about the legal analysts that are part of our world. And I, I didn't mean for our conversation to turn into sort of this, this love <laughs> fest, but it like there's there is a role. We are building out the infrastructure, the economy, or or freedom for the whole world. And so if you don't like how it's going, bring your skill set to help build the infrastructure and then bring your um, personality and your um, ethic so that we can make sure we're building something that is ethical and sustainable. And um, anyway, I'd go on, but it, it sounds like you think the same way. Yeah. And the parallels there that you just said are, are um, very interesting when you start to think about it. Uh, if you look at the progress of humanity, we kept creating these different tools. But, you know, from the river barges that were moving things back and forth to ports, right? And then you think of the trains, and then you think of the freeways. You know, the the internet is basically another network, right? Mm-hmm. It's a network of networks. And so when you think about the places that thrived in the past were the ones with ports, where people were, where commerce happened, where trade happened, right? And so when you think of digital infrastructure, it's, it's the same. So when I think of, uh, like on a freeway, I'm, I'm going down, if there's no off-ramp to a city, that city's not getting the traffic. They're not getting the commerce. They're not getting the opportunity. Right. So we have a lot of those challenges in digital infrastructure right now. There's these big freeways of fiber all over the country, right? All over the world, under the sea, right? right. <laughs> Yet it passes by so many rural communities. And so from an, you know, a, a social standpoint, we are, or they have a less opportunity because they don't have internet connections or bandwidth, right? That that internet connectivity opens up the door for so many different things because now it's a it's the great equalizer when it comes down to people. Right. I can get on the internet, I can go do things and I can be my little person here and I can have global impact. I can have global sales, I can have a voice. There's so so this this idea of building out more and more infrastructure globally. That's what we do. 
And if you think about internet exchanges today, where all of the internet traffic goes, there are like 66 internet exchanges um, that are, are the largest in the world. So you think of like 60 Hudson, one Wilshire. This is where all the carriers and networks come together. And then where everybody starts to peer, all the companies, right? So imagine 300 different networks all interconnecting and allowing to be able to now use their networks, right? So so to interrupt just for half a second. So when I try yeah. to explain something like this to somebody, I say, look, there's probably 20 airports in the world, in the US, in Atlanta, a Chicago, mm -hmm. like whatever. If you're flying to Europe, you're going to either London or Frankfurt or like these are the, these are the, the massive the hubs. hubs, the biggest hubs. And from there... They, they branch out. So if you're doing this travel, commerce, shipping, mm -hmm. moving people, whatever. So just for people who aren't familiar with our world to give them some context. So please keep going. Yeah, and it's just like the train, same thing. You got a train right. station where, where people congregate. It's the on and off ramps of, of, the, of the things that are happening. But if you look at the way that things are transforming today, it used to be just these exchanges. But now Edge, so this concept of... Um, Compute and data moving closer and closer to the consumption. Mm -hmm. When I say the consumption, it's people and machines, mm -hmm. not just people. We have 8 billion people on the planet, mm -hmm. but we're going to have 135 billion things by 2030 with a trillion sensors behind them. Mm -hmm. Massive amounts of things, right? <laughs> and the, I always say this data tsunami, it's true. The amount of data that's actually being generated, consumed, processed it doesn't make sense for all this stuff to collapse back to a core. Right. It's a distributed thing. So that's what Edge is all about, is saying, I'm moving the data and the processing closer to the, the usage of that data. And then I'm going to prune that data. So when you think about where is that, well, all of a sudden you've got these, like you said, airports, train stations, right? Concentrations of cities. There's a ton of stuff there, but it's pushing out to all the edges, right. all the different areas. And so for us, now it goes back to my other point. We have 7 million data centers today, 7 million unique uh, locations, okay? They consume 105 gigawatts capacity, or sorry, they have 105 gigawatts of total capacity, right? And they consume 594 terawatt hours of energy. That represents 2.4% of the global energy draw. That's today's digital infrastructure. That demarcation is when it leaves your phone, everything that supports it outside of that, right? From the towers all the way to the super campuses, all of that is digital infrastructure to enable this engine to operate in that manner. Now, that 7 million is going to turn into what? <laughs> How many cities are there? Like right. globally. How right. many edge locations will there be? You're going to start to add multiples on it. Then you think of the amount of data that's generated, right? It's 270 zettabytes by, I forgot the... Anyways, the numbers are increasing, and it's incredible how much data is being generated because we're getting faster machines, bigger pipes, right? More people, more machines actually consuming. So that tsunami can't all go back to the same place. You got to distribute it out, and you got to prune all that data. So now when you think about the people, if I 7 million locations become 70 million, which is right. everything from the street corner that's controlling the smart intersection... <laughs> the box on the corner to the gigawatt campuses. There's a ton. People can only support so many of those locations. That's where we have to have automation and digital colleagues that ties into it. But no matter what, we need the people. 
to go in and actually build and lead and drive and orchestrate and manage digital infrastructure globally because the world needs it. Mm-hmm. Just imagine if if the internet stopped. <laughs> the world stops. The like world we regress. Stop. Right. You know? So it's 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 a that's again a calling for us, I think, in, in our industry is that we build that engine. We operate that engine. We need to do it economically, socially, and sustainably. We have a we have a responsibility to do those things. So it must, that tide needs to lift all boats. You know, when it comes down to a data center landing in a in a, a region, it should be additive and complementary to that community. So whether it's power, infrastructure, jobs, supporting secondary and third tier jobs that go outside it, restaurants, hotels, whatever, like everything should start to boom when you have digital infrastructure, that hub, that mm-hmm. airport, right? That exchange, that train station, that should start to boost the things around it. You're inspiring me to ask about AI, but before I do that, there's a, um, <laughs> I didn't know that th- there was a this th- thing probably because of just the sheltered world that I live in. But I've noticed more and more organizations, whether they consume data center resources or they are operators themselves, generally these are the big hyperscalers. So when we say mm-hmm. hyperscale, if you just think of whatever the largest cloud, social media, e-commerce, um, software as a service platforms there are in the world, we could name all the names, you name some of them in your resume, um, those companies and others, but they mm-hmm. now have groups of people, and I'm inspired by this. I've heard a number of them spot, uh, speak that go into communities to help listen to the community. They're basically community involvement. And at first, I thought, well, they're just going into where they going into strong arm somebody. Like, why? Why would you do this? I've been so pleasantly surprised. I yep. just don't think they get enough um, uh, great coverage for this at least not my world where they go in and they're like how do we help part of the educate like how do i support labs in high schools or even elementary schools how do i help ride through certain situations in the pandemic i know they've done a number of things many Mm -hmm. times in at risk communities how do we help and it's you know some people that are super cynical or um see that as self-serving but i'm like hey why wouldn't you if a union local could go help or some organization could go help and perhaps some of the people that they help later um, come work for their organization because they had a great experience, but it, but the, the core seemed to be like, how do I help the people around me? Mm-hmm. And um, it was pretty remarkable. But I guess my question is, or, or comment and question is, I'm surprised of the need to do that, not as a recruiting effort, but that part of their thing is there's a number of people that don't see the benefit of a data center coming into their world. They're resistant to it. And maybe they're, I'm not saying our industry is without fault and sometimes coming in and just, you know, we just show up, you know, overnight, here comes some small Mm -hmm. or big building. But um, I wasn't aware of the resistance and the need, not just to come in and help, but to make sure the community understands, look, we're here for your good. We're here for flourishing. We're not, um, we mm-hmm. want to be part of the community, not disruptors of the community. I look at, um, again, we've got some amazing people in our industry. I'm going to call them out by name right now, because sure, please do. if you think of the biggest buyers, biggest players in the world, um, this is not just about them getting a good, positive public image. This is about an ecosystem that they're building. 
because they are large investors, mm-hmm. right? They're large employers. They want to have a positive impact on what they actually deploy. And so one of the biggest challenges, you look at the, um, in Dublin, right? There's a whole bunch of power allocated to data centers and there's protests saying, you know, you're taking this from, from, from us and things. So how do you go back and change and help those communities, right? So I, I look at, uh, so Joe Cava at Google, Christian Bellotti at Microsoft, Rachel Peterson at Meta, uh, Spaz Lazarov at Apple, um, and Eric Wilcops at uh, AWS. Those five people are, are literally doing real community efforts in some of the largest deployments in the world. Mm-hmm. And I want to call them out because, again, they're awesome people and they have awesome brands in, right, that they can actually leverage to do the right thing. And so, for example, um, when you go in and you start to think about the, the amount of power that's consumed, a data center consumes a lot, but it also provides stability because we don't have these wild swings of power that happens with a manufacturing plant that's on during the day and off at night, right? Or some type like yogurt factories or any, you know, there's just so much cyclical, right? Or cycling uh, power where data centers are baseload. That allows the utility to be able to now take the other things that are smaller pieces and, and be able to handle them. They're also a great sink so they can get off grid. So demand response. So they can now add stability within there. Also, when I was at eBay, we um, when we went and built in in, um, in West uh, South Jordan, Utah, mm-hmm. um, we upgraded all the electrical lines. Right, we expanded the amount of power delivered to an area. We enabled a light rail system to come back in, and that that community boomed because we had a large. We put a couple billion dollars right worth of infrastructure into Utah. Right down the street was Oracle. Right across, so you had all these, and it kept growing. Where that was complementary to the actual um, area. Now there's even bigger things that happen within um, the larger players in the world. Their investments in the communities. So this is this is where I say that there's an ecosystem balance here between both the economic impact, positive, when it comes down to boosting a community, Mm -hmm. the jobs that are created, to the actual social aspects. Can we enable people to have a better life, more opportunities, right? That that helps to elevate within that community. And then the third one is the sustainability side. Can we go back and do this in a clean way? Mm-hmm. Help enable more clean power within the regions, right? Help of those upgrades, help zero water, hydrogen and vegetable oil and generators, like everything we can do. And we should talk about the climate accord at some point here. Yeah. Um, but it's about all those people coming together to actually have that positive impact uh, within those deployments in those communities. I don't know if I've met, I think I've met Joe at Google. I don't know that I've met the others. So um, mm-hmm. I, I certainly know their names, but I'm, I'm pleasantly supri- surprised regularly the influence their organization lends to these leaders that they've earned them. It's, it's uncommon in my experience to see organizations that lend hmm. power, like they lend their name and their backing to leaders to, um, so obviously they have to trust them, to go out yep. and um, do things that are maybe, they're a longer, they're a longer term uh payback you know it's not a it's not a quarterly annual what's 
you know, let's measure the results. What's my uh, what's my balance scorecard against these things? It's look, this is the, <laughs> and there is that. I'm sure they have those things in their organization. Sure, there is sure. no way those organizations survive without being profitable. But it it's not their purpose. At least for these leaders, it's not their purpose. It is as we do these things. Um, this is important. I know just as an operator, we've been influenced. Um, there are a number of things that we've had to adopt and change because of the influence of these large buyers and these, um, uh, and by that I mean in a positive way, I'm only thinking in a positive way at how we have to adopt operations and how we do sustainability. Um, we have ESG reports, um, which is in our world is energy, social, and then the governance, you've got to have real governance. We want measurable, you know, if I, we want measurable results against whatever controls you have. So in any organization, if, if you say, yeah, my airplanes, you know, yeah, they pass inspection. Well, if it's Ted Taco, an airplane shack up the street that's doing the inspection and giving you a certificate, probably not interested. But if it's one of the big three firms or some other accredited major yeah, organization that, yep. yeah, that does that certification. Well, now you've got real governance. And we've had to adopt um, years ago um, controls that start off very modest over time because we're learning them and we have to work them in. But they become more and more rigorous um, as time goes on and then the reporting on them. And so it's it's pretty cool that those leaders in particular that you've called out, and I'm sure there are others that help mm-hmm go into communities and influence their organization to benefit the community around them. Yeah. And, and by the way, there's, there's hundreds of others. I mean, you know, senior people that, that are given the authority and the influence to go back and drive. um, I would say the, the larger corporate uh, strategy Um, because one of the things to, to think about is, you know, you take a Microsoft, a Google and AWS, a meta, an Apple, they all have public commitments. Right. Across ESG. So they're looking for their leaders to go back and say, how do we move the ball forward? Mm-hmm. How do we meet these goals? And so they're empowered. And I think that's another awesome thing in our industry. You know, that you've got these, the, the biggest buyers in the world are the hyperscalers, okay? Mm-hmm. They represent at least half of the buying uh, of all things, <laughs> right? Digital infrastructure globally. But then you think of the other half, like the Colos. Some of the biggest buyers in the world is the combination of almost 100 co-location companies, generators, UPSs, switchgear, right? right? I mean, there's just a huge amount of construction, components, deployment, operations, right? Like It's huge. So the buying power and influence of those companies is very, very large. But they also all have their commitments too, right? Carbon neutrality, net zero, (laughs) <laughs> social aspects when it comes down to what they're doing in their communities. Mm-hmm. So it really all comes together into a ecosystem that you have to have the people that can go back and actually make this happen. So, you know, from an IMASIS standpoint, that's why we go back to these four pillars. This is, this is the stuff that we believe has the most impact. And it's not just about like the AI technology or the next liquid cooling or, you know, um, containment or, you know, optimized network. It is literally the system approach and the system from the technology, the system from the education and the pipeline, right to the diversity and inclusion aspects, because we just don't have enough diversity. Mm-hmm. The majority of our industry looks like you and me. Mm-hmm. 
Caucasian males over 50. Yeah. There's less than 10% females, right. even less than that in underrepresented groups. So, you know, we got to change that mixture. And then the other side in sustainability. How do we go back and drive um, the right programs and the right things to make the biggest impact as fast as possible? And again, coming together, you compound the impact. Mm -hmm. So that's why the community to me is so important because like I can go back and pontificate about a bunch of things, but I'm just me. Mm -hmm. In the end of it, if I go back and have all these other players involved, that voice is big, but the action is bigger. Yeah. It's there's there's a lot of buying power. There's a lot of influence from these kind of players and bringing them together on things, you can make real change. When you were a kid, did you ever think you would be a uh, evangelist for something as unsexy as infrastructure? <laughs> First off, infrastructure is sexy. Come on now. <laughs> you put We're bringing sexy, sexy back. This is it. <laughs> well, if they, um, if they look at 20-year-old me, airborne infantry, maybe. But uh, Stay Puff Marshmallow Man me, probably not so much. <laughs> but what we do for the world is, the impact of what we do is absolutely Absolutely that. I, I That's why I'm so excited about what we do every day. Yeah, we, I, I know the impact of the work that we do. And that is motivating, you know. Um, I would say that to answer your question, though, I, I really had no idea what I was going to do. So take the the trade school and the other things. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I every time I look back and think, holy moly, I actually drove $10 billion worth of infrastructure yeah. on three continents. When did that happen? How did, <laughs> right. how did that happen, you know? Even if it was holy moly, how did I end up at Sun Micro? Hmm. And and I found a tribe and I found a people that I resonated with. And I was able to bring all of me, my aptitude, my attitude, and find a place. One of the things that's challenging for me as a as a, a parent um with kids in their early 20s, so many of our conversations. They're like, look, I don't know what my purpose is, and it's really hanging them up, and they're really trying to, it's unsettling them. And and one of the things that unsettles them, I'm a huge fan of social media. I love them as a customer. I use them to keep up with the things that are interesting to me in life. But one of the consequences that I, I wish I had understood better, I don't think anybody really understood, maybe that's just giving me a pass, was a consequence of certain groups watching what appears to be this miraculous life with other people and experiences. And mm. it's in my world anyway, it's unsettled them. And I, I was like, I was 18 years old and to escape authority from my parents who were too draconian, I signed up and joined airborne infantry. Are you <laughs> stupid? My wife wow. at 18 was out the door. Um, and, you know, there was this natural process of, man, I'm an adult and these rules are draconian. And man, if I could go back and do the dishes now and go to junior college in Southern California in the early 80s, and that was my only commitment was with the chores, heck yeah. But but I didn't know what my, I, I didn't figure out, I didn't shake out really where I was going to land in probably until my mid 30s. And some people have it right off the bat and others are a different journey, but I don't remember being hung up um, on what my purpose had to be. And so it's really cool to, you know, anyway, I just resonated when you kind of came out and said, hmm, well, I'll try this. Let's see. I know what I don't want to do. I don't want to do that. Uh -huh. So let me try this thing. I seem like your dad suggested, you seem to be good at this. Well, I'll go try it and we'll see where it takes us. And 
isn't it interesting? It doesn't happen with everybody. I mean, we run into the outliers where um, they just get obstacle after obstacle through no fault of their own, and it's, you know, heartbreaking. The universe, more often than not, will will provide an opportunity, um, multiple opportunities, and off you go mm -hmm. with it. I mean, it's just full of those stories. So I... I don't know. That's just a weird intersection. This about you know digital infrastructure, <laughs> but just this this kind of spot. And so one of the reasons why I like to proselytize what we're talking about. Look, you don't have to have it all figured out. There's so many opportunity in the world that we live in, our, our literal industry and world. Mm -hmm. Come and check it out. Yeah, and and um, I, I think that's <laughs> the majority of the world does not have it figured out. As a matter of fact, throughout their life, they still don't have it figured out. Right. You basically find what you like to do. And when you do that, you have passion around it. And then you just get better and better and better at it. And when you do that, people notice and you get more and more opportunities. So uh, my, my daughter is in entertainment, right? So she's a she's a, an artist. Uh, you know, She's with a girl group called Citizen Queen. And I remember early on with my wife, we we're saying, okay, um, you know, I, she can go into tech. She can go into accounting. She can go into whatever. It's like... Let's let's figure out what she wants to do. Mm -hmm. Let's let her explore and play with that. And we gave her the freedom to be able to say, you pursue what you like because you're going to be happy. Right. Pursue what you like. Right. And and um, it's just been amazing to see her because she's, uh, again, I'm very biased, but she's an incredible singer. Right. Um, and, you know, she's now done stadium shows across the United States. She played Oracle Arena, Madison Square Garden. It's insane, right? right? And his parents watching that going, holy crap, she's in her element. She's she also loves, a very accomplished songwriter. Uh, as well, yeah. So, But she kept exploring out all these things. Right. But my, my point is that that um, I found, you know, in my career, as a parallel to that, I found the things that I really enjoyed. And that that sparked my curiosity. And the curiosity... You know, for me, it's like, I want to know how that thing works. Okay, and then I want to figure out how those things tie together. And then you get into the systems thinking about what does that influence and impact of it? You know, and so I I learned all that as I went along and the pieces fit together in an odd way, you know, go on the manufacturing line now and go back and doing stuff like this. But strangely, it, it kind of fell into place. But I love what I do. Right. I wake up, I'm happy. And that's that's a huge, huge, huge thing. If you wake up and you're not happy, Rethink what you're doing. Right. So Same when, scary and challenging, but seriously, what do you want to do that's going to actually turn your crank, right. <laughs> wake you up in the morning? Right. Well, I, I remember saying to somebody once they were they were saying very similar to what you just said. And I said, yeah, but that won't pay the bills. And I said, you'd be amazed. It actually will. You will be amazed. Mm -hmm. Now, not everybody has the same aptitude. Not everybody has the same... Uh, opportunity. But if you bring authentic you, look for a way. And in other words, I guess what he was trying to say to me was look for a way to bring your uh, aptitude that will fit in the marketplace because there is a way. And you bring a great attitude. You, I, I'm just, everybody we <laughs> bump into, it's some combination of those things. Um, and it, generally, they're not geniuses. We may call them geniuses because they are singular of mine. And we do sometimes run into geniuses. But generally speaking, the, the overwhelming majority of people just bring all of those two things with some opportunity and they change the world. I, I think it's attitude, um, aptitude, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, curiosity and and dedication. Like th those four things, when you, you put those together, 
like I, I, you know, that we're talking about the colleges, right? Four year right. university. There's nothing wrong with a four year university. There's an amazing talent that comes out of that, but it's a small subset of the world, right? So you should definitely get those people. But when you start to look at the potential, like I remember interviewing different people and I would say, so I give them a riddle. Tell me how you solve this problem, right? There's a fox, a chicken, and a bag of grain on one side of the river. You got to get them all over the other side. Okay, well, get a boat. You don't have a boat. You know, so you just start throwing at them. But for me, it was, how are they thinking? Right. How are they approaching it? Did they give up? Yeah. Did they get creative? Did they, like, that's the kind of thing, like, hmm, we can foster that. We can take that, because I can train you on the other aspects. This is the specific in your job. But when it goes down to you, it's very hard to train curiosity. <laughs> it's hard to train dedication, right? And uh, and the passion for something. Right. So So attitude to me is everything, right? And aptitude is built over that time. And then the curiosity, if you have that factor, you you can, because you're always trying to figure something out. Right. And when you figure it out, ah, great, that piece fits here. Let me figure out the next one, you know? So that that curiosity in any field, I think is, is, is a talent that I always search for, uh, yeah. for people, because I know they're going to, they're going to not, not do it. They're, they can't help but do it because they're curious. They want to understand. Right. I love it. I, I, well, there's an opportunity for curiosity in uh, in the world we live in. But hey, look, let's let's like, we'd be here all day, and uh, <laughs> I want to move on. One of the things you've talked a, a number of times. So I know you've written um, a book. You've talked about Infrastructure Masons, this organization that you founded. One of the things that you also that came out of that in community, and you've mentioned it a couple times now, is the um, is the Accord. Can you tell us what that is? Uh, Briefly, because yeah. I think it's going to play into the next part of our conversation. Absolutely. So the iMasons Climate Accord was born on February 22nd, 22. And it happened at an advisory council session at Christian Bilotti's house. Okay. I called him up and said, hey, uh, can we just bring the advisory council to your place and let's just dive in? So we spent six hours there. But what the Climate Accord is, is um, a consortium of companies that have come together to... Uh, drive down carbon and digital infrastructure. Okay. And that is the first step towards net zero. Mm. We want to get to carbon neutrality within digital infrastructure. So we're doing that by lowering carbon in materials, products, and power. And just to put that in perspective, the materials that build a building, remember the 7 million locations I was talking about? Mm -hmm. That's the concrete, steel, copper, everything else to go back and assemble that place for computers to go. Then... You have the equipment that goes in it, air conditioning, GPSs, servers, switches, everything inside that has, has been built is shipped there and installed into that building itself. So if you think of those two elements, um, we're approaching this like a carbon or a um, nutrition label. Mm. We should have a carbon label on the products and a carbon label on the building. And what that shows is the embodied carbon history of the products and the building. You sum them up. And I will know the embodied carbon of that location. Then you couple that with the source energy. And I will know the carbon intensity of the power consumed of that equipment in that building. If we do that, that means we should be able to have 7 million locations with their unique combinations of materials, products, and power report to their carbon right for every location. Mm -hmm. If we do that, now we have real-time carbon accounting of digital infrastructure that supports the world. 
then we have the ability to say, how do we continue to drive it down? Mm. Thousands of ways to do that. Green concrete, hydrogen vegetable oil, circular economy equipment, clean energy, right? Like just not, but we have a measurement for it. So the climate accord was for us to come together and say, how do we as an industry tackle that? So that's what came out of uh, uh, basically the uh, the advisory council session. Mm -hmm. We established that February 22nd, March 17th, we formalized the ICA. Mm. We formalized the approach with the carbon labels. And then on April 25th, we launched this initiative in Monaco at the Broad Group Awards. So Christian Bellotti and I were on stage, and we said we have 73 companies that have come together, including AWS, Google, Meta, Microsoft, Schneider Electric, Cisco, like, you know, and we had, I think, 25 co-location companies at that point. Fast forward to today, we have over 200 companies involved in this with almost 80 co-location companies. So the biggest buyers in the world are all united behind carbon reduction of digital infrastructure. They're going to, remember this combination of companies mm -hmm. is over $6 trillion of market cap. Wow. Massive buying power. So what we're doing is influencing the process to be able to accelerate the time to carbon neutrality. And that means we're going to go influence RFPs, requirements and things that go back through procurement, right? Aligned with the, the actual suppliers on the other side. Okay, they're part of the same accord. Excellent. So let's go balance this out and we can achieve things faster. This is the compounding nature of what I was saying before. If we can get all these people together, united, right, on a cause, mm -hmm. we compound the effect mm -hmm. and we accelerate the timeline, right? And we need to, because from a sustainability standpoint, we all know climate change and the challenging of it. Mm -hmm. And we represent right now 2.4% of the global energy draw. But with the amount of data that's being generated, the amount of consumption between people and machines growing over time, that's going to go into double digits eventually. Sure. Right? Now, we've done a great job in the past of trying to keep that curve flattened. Mm -hmm. Right? We should probably talk about some of the technologies and you know the standards of things that did that. But now we've got kind of low-hanging fruit done. This, this ramp's going to go back up. How do we do it as most sustainable as yeah, the most sustainably as we can? Mm -hmm. But to me, this is the united front. If we can now have everybody focused in on this, uh, we can make meaningful change and do our contributions back to uh, address climate change. Is is um, so that's the accord? Is infrastructure masons just for industry people directly tied to the industry? So Infrastructure Masons is the parent organization. Right. Um, the iMasons Climate Accord is a program inside of iMasons. Right. But the difference here is that iMasons is a professional body. So we are we are basically uh, individuals. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, we leave our companies at the door. Right. It is a member-driven right uh, society. Right. But then you look at the Climate Accord. We had to represent the companies. So that's why it's a program that stands on its own, own budget, own leadership. We have a governing body, mm -hmm. right, that actually drives that. But it's under the, the guise of the iMasons uh, organization. Mm -hmm. But they are driving now, this is the 200 plus companies that are actually signed up for the accord, mm -hmm. right? And they're driving their practices to be able to say, I've made my own commitments, and now I'm going to take my practices internally to actually drive those things. But I'm going to see where else I can help in the community, so this is why if we have a carbon labeling concept, just imagine, just like you have a nutrition label on a, on a box of food, right. you see what's in it. Now I can make buying decisions based on that, right? Usually right. I want somebody with lower sodium, lower fat, saturated fat, et cetera. Right. Well, now I can look at it and say, well, this data center, 
is actually right has a lower carbon footprint because of the way they built it, the way they operate it, mm-hmm. the way they have sourced energy. Awesome. I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna buy from them. Mm. You know, what's interesting is there is a as an operator, there is, you know, we have these pressures of, in no particular order, scale, speed, economics, uh, latency. Um, regulatory requirements, um, not to mention steady state, you have to stay up the entire time. And so uh, just mm. personal experience to, to just, we are usually a fast follower. We are not usually an early adopter. And so mm-hmm. when a I'm not saying these are any of our customers, but when an Amazon or a Google or a Twitter or a Microsoft or an Apple or Netflix or eBay or Uber or Meta or choose one, when they show up and say, in order to do business with us, before we get to the table stakes things, in order to do business, these are the requirements. Like we won't even entertain a response if if we don't see a um, if it, if you don't um, address adequately these particular things, it's just, and we're going to talk about this, I know more when we talk about energy, but it's difficult for us to pivot to be an early adopter. And so part of what you're talking about resonates with me in order to give, and I'm not trying to give a pass to operators, but one of the ways that gives us freedom to pivot, renewable energy sourcing, for example, ESG reports. We started pivoting to ESG reports years ago, or not just ESGs, but building the programs and then mm-hmm. building the um, the governance around it and formalizing it was because we began getting re- first requests. Hey, what do you guys have in the way of um, what's your what's your green policy? I mean, that's originally what it was called. What's your green philosophy or your green policy? There was no requirement. They just wanted to know. They wanted us to articulate a story. Yep. Then they wanted mm-hmm. us to show them a path. And it was, I'm not saying it was marketing material, but there was no, um, there was no like regulation around it. There was no um, weight behind it. Mm-hmm. V- um, very quickly, it moved exponentially quickly, faster than adopting different ASHRAE standards or other things. They said, look, no, this, if you want to move to the next level with us, you have to have a performance that looks like this. You have to have these things in place. And then you have to demonstrate through audits and other mechanisms that you're doing it, in-person audits, but then also publish audits. And so it's changed the industry. Everybody does it now, or or certainly Mm -hmm. all the major players do it now. But that was not the case five years ago. And so I'm, I'm curious of the things that you're talking about to see how that plays out if I want to, we we just hosted uh, Mike Lotfi, Michael Lotfi from Schneider, head of R and D and power products for Schneider mm-hmm. North America, really cool guy. And one of the things that he and I talked about, we didn't talk about the labels specifically, but it is for sure in their culture. How do we become wildly more efficient, exponentially more green? Because this is a core requirement of. We believe globally the um, how we're going to how we're going to go about serving up our products and services, and mm-hmm. so we inherit that. But if they don't do that, we don't inherit it. So 
I'm going to tie a few things together here. Um, so uh, Schneider Electric is actually a governing body seat holder. Mm. So Anna Timmy uh, from Schneider is actually with us. So we've got AWS, Google, Meta, Microsoft, iMasons, uh, Schneider Electric, and Digital Realty are currently serving as the leadership team for the Climate Accord. Mm. Okay. And if you look at um, when Schneider came in, they I think they've been voted the most sustainable company in the world. Wow. And this is not something they... Yeah, it's not something you just do overnight. They've been right. doing this for 15 years as a core component of their company, right? From CEO down. And so they are fully committed to it. But the one of the reasons that that they were selected for the, the governing body is that um, they have over 95% of their products already defined with what they call a PEP. Mm. Okay, so it's a product environmental profile. But a PEP is actually an EDP right? Environmental disclosure product, right? Or project. But that is a carbon label. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, it all comes down to I'm exposing the embodied carbon aspects of a product that you have in your data center. They are publishing all that openly, publicly. So now think about how many Schneider Electric components, right? From Square D to UPSs to everything that's in data centers immediately. You have all those things available for your carbon tracking. That's what we're pointing out. We want those labels on all those components so you can add it up. It's accounting. It's basically what's that building there. But they also are tied really heavily to scope three. And scope three is about, it's <laughs> what did it take to actually get that thing to be able to be used? Right. It's the carbon history of it, right? From the mining to the smelting to the assembly to the shipping to the installation, like all of those aspects, there's a carbon footprint from it. Well, that's a loaded carbon footprint. That's embodied carbon for that product. Now they're sharing all of that, but they're also showing the operational carbon efficiency, right? What they're doing as far as how they're in, in tuning their product. They also are sharing part of that is the death because you got to tear all this stuff down at some point. Mm-hmm. So it is the full carbon accounting of a product from birth to death. That needs to be right accounted for. And so that's what that's what we want these companies to do. So two things are happening. You get companies like Schneider that are putting out their PEPs, right? Or their carbon labels on these products. Then you have the buyers on the other side that are saying, great, I'm going to ingest that information. I'm going to make my buying decisions based on this now. There's a forcing function. So then the other piece I want to tie together is what changed over the last five years? Why did this suddenly become a priority? Mm. Two reasons from my perspective. First, the money. Okay, so if you look at all the investment firms, BlackRock, Blackstone, Macquarie, right? All of these very big firms said, we are now shifting because we realize the money will drive behavior. We're shifting to a sustainable investment strategy. The majority of private equity, venture, and other funds are going after sustainable investments. Okay, so the money that's coming back in. Look at how many um, sustainably based loans are out there now across across all these different data centers, right? I think Macquarie, Neutrality, like a bunch of them, or, or uh, Aligned Energy, uh, Digital, they all have these green funds mm. that they have to meet criteria to actually get that low financing because they've actually met these sustainability targets within it. Right. So it's driving the behavior, okay? So that's one. The second is public commitments, Think about the biggest companies in the world have committed to net zero by a certain date. 
Net zero is really tough. Mm. I mean, it's all aspects, right? It's it's very hard. So they're not sure exactly how they're going to get there. But things like the climate accord allow them to accelerate the schedule to bring together the people instead of saying, here's an RFP, you must meet A, B, and C. Right. It's we're working on this together. How can we go back and lower that back down? Do you have carbon labels? Excellent. We can measure. The data is behind it. I can get this via API. Awesome. So the disclosure of that content from the provider, from the buyer, now says that we can together accelerate it because you can have a conversation about how you as partners can go back and solve something. So I think those aspects um, are what's different today because you know I started my sustainability journey back in 2008 when I was just on microsystems. And there were just some amazing people there that had great vision, right? And they said, it, it all goes down to, it's the balance of ecology and economics. It can't be a trade-off of one or the other. They need to work in concert. Right. It's taken a long time, but it had to be at the buying side to change the behavior, right? right? And that has to be funded. <laughs> so put those pieces together, and now we have real, real change that can happen. One of the things that's amazing about all of that to me, we're talking about Schneider. Um, I'm not a, I don't think I even own Schneider stock. I probably should, but. I don't either. They are are (laughs) leaders of innovation. While they're doing this, they did not leave their innovation hat at the door. They did not lead, lead, like Michael's a pretty, uh, pretty dynamic personality. And his enthusiasm and curiosity, as you were talking about it earlier, for how do we innovate? Um, they don't. They, he doesn't. It's in my opinion, he doesn't sit there and say, "How do I innovate green?" What he thinks about is, "How do I innovate these power products for these customers? How do I solve these problems?" And while I'm innovating, I need to make sure that I'm doing no harm to the best of my ability. How does that work with the materials that we have, and how does that look? So it's part of their philosophy. But they're, Absolutely. you know, they're still, regardless of how much somebody uses them or doesn't use them, they are some of the leading innovators of any industry in the world. And so it just shows you that look, if you put your heart and mind to it, again, not trying to be a, this is not an infomercial for Schneider. I just admire organizations that that buy into something and, and then really apply it. Mercedes for years about their innovation and their patents and their vehicles and Lexus. And, and there's so many great industries that have done this for a long time where they, mm-hmm. they just bring the whole of them and certain attitudes in uh, Schneider's for sure one of them, but they, they just bring that innovation while they pursue these other things. And that's because it starts at the top. Sure. And without that definition at the top, you don't have the support to say, here's how it translates. And the other one, I think we, we touched on this earlier, the empowerment of If you now let your people understand what you're trying to accomplish and you open them up to be creative to go back and accomplish it, you will get more out of that than you will than dictating (laughs) how things are done, right? And those types of things. You you need to let the people actually take their passion, right? Take their creativity and actually go solve those problems. And I think that, so it's a leadership thing, right? It's about vision and strategy and leadership that allows the teams to thrive and results to come out. And so I, you know, I look at, at companies like Schneider and there's a number of them, like Sun was very, very similar with that. It was a culture of innovation, but it was in a culture of empowerment at the same time. Mm-hmm. We want you to try new things. We want you to, to actually go tackle that. And we're gonna support you 
right, with your creativity to try these different things to, to make the customer solution better. Now take that and apply it towards sustainability. How do we make the planet better? We have a responsibility to do that. And corporations like we have within the Climate Accord are all driving towards that end state. Mm. That's really, really powerful. I I agree. I look. I'm. We're, we still have time, but I want to. I want to get to an article that you wrote. Um, I think it was in November. Before we get there, though, I think we have one more step. Okay. And that is. Um, I think it was Christian at Microsoft, but I'm not sure. So I don't. I don't want to mm. give credit to the wrong spot. But this formalization of this idea called um, PUE. Mm. Can you explain first of all? what it is meant by PUE, and um, let's just start there. What was okay. the need for it? What is it? And um, if you can help us to understand it. Yeah. Uh, by the way, there's a great article in uh, Interglobics, Interglobics Magazine, okay. um, edition nine or eight, I can't remember, but Christian's on the cover. So Christian is the father of PUE. He worked at, at uh, Hewlett Packard at that point. And he was flying back uh, from a customer meeting in Japan. And the customer was trying to figure out decisions and efficiencies. And, and he's like, I need them to understand the difference between the compute and the facility. Mm. I need them to know that where the, the things move are based on the focus for each of those areas. Because we can optimize the compute, but it doesn't optimize the data center. Mm -hmm. So he created PUE. And that is basically power usage effectiveness. And that just means... How much power is used for the IT and how much power is used for the facilities? So it's, you know, when you've got a PUE of two, that means I've got a one, one watt for the server and one watt for everything else. Electrical losses, generators, you know, what, whatever I'm doing, I'm wasting a watt mm. to do work on the other watt. Mm. So people now took that metric and started um, applying it. And I remember uh, 2009, I think it was, I posted a blog. And I said, um, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. That was the title <laughs> of the blog. Okay. And, you deride uh, kids. Oh, man. Yeah. Just, yeah, there it is. So, um, uh, but I went out and said, okay, Santa Clara Data Center for Sun Microsystems, right? We have a PUE of 1.28, right? And, and when? 2009? 2009. That's pretty and remarkable. So it, it was it was amazing, right? And, and by the way, Mike Ryan, if you're listening to this, he was and Serena Devito and Brian Day and uh, I mean, this my team was awesome, right? right? So they designed and implemented this this data center. Um, but you know, when we put it back out, everybody started debating it. Like, no way you could have that. Da -da 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 -da. They went through all these things, right? right? And it went down to well, we designed it a certain way, and it was a, po a moment in time. It's not a trailing twelve month average. It went like, but the point is, nobody had done any of that discussion and debate. It was like. Well, that number's wrong. Right. Here's what we found. Um, put the number out. The public will scrutinize it. And the number will get more accurate. Mm -hmm. And if I look at what happened with PUE over the last 10 years, the result is pretty powerful. First off, we had projections from Jonathan Kumi at, at Stanford and others that we we're going into double digits power consumption for digital infrastructure starting back in 2007. Sure. Okay, so think about that. Now we're at 2.4%. Why? Well, PUE basically drove that curve down. At the beginning, people were saying, there's no way in hell I'm going to share my PUE. Right. It shows me inefficiency. It's a, it's a deal killer, right. right? Then it became a competition. 
Then you have people like Google that said, you know what? We're going to take it one step further, trailing 12-month average, right? which means real data showing the performance across our global portfolio. Then those, those things started going back into RFPs and requirements. And so the colos and everybody started really looking at, we have to be efficient. It's it's just the cost of doing business. We have to figure that out. Right. So there was a forcing function. So PUE was a trigger that allows to have visibility to the data to actually now scrutinize and make it better. And the result was more efficient infrastructure. Probably very quickly in our world anyway, within 18 months, there was a uh, pretty robust framework of yep. where, how, and what, and what the targets were that... And here's the accidental genius. I'm going to say it's accidental. If anybody claims it was on purpose, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll debate them at a, a, a beverage contest someday. But anyway, it was um, they started working into your agreements. So when we want to do business with you, um, not just you have to hit a number, but it was the multiplier by which we calculate what we owe you and how you do these things, and and you get. Um, not just who do we want to do business with, but there's more financial incentive for you, operator, the degree that you help me with my efficiency. The second thing that it did, unintended consequence, you've said this a number of times about nobody wanted to re- wants to reveal the, um, the embedded carbon or some of these other things. Well, back then, we didn't have tools with which, because we were a colo provider, we didn't have tools with which I could segregate out your performance and your suite or data hall right. or whatever from right, the, right, right. the rack next to you. Mm-hmm. It was all sort of blended together. And I, I couldn't share that data as protected data. Well, it forced an evolution in tools. We built our own. There's now, I believe, some that you can buy off the shelf that allows me to segregate that, build API so I can report. It's all, it's, you don't, it's a, you don't do business yep. now if you don't have that. Which, in a weird way, has allowed us to move to analytics, uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, automation. Like it's b- because we built all these data lakes and segregated all these tools and built all these APIs so they can tie them into their systems, had this unintended consequence and benefit for us. But so, so we've gone through this journey now of PUE. <clears throat> We're wildly, c- c- and by the way, I thought. Our PUE, it would be remarkable if a PUE, in my opinion, was a 1.4. From where I remember thinking about it in 2007, 2008, like 22, 2.4, We were inheriting data mm-hmm. centers that had were just converted buildings that were, um, you know, yep. rough around the edges. In particular, for a company like ours, which weren't really greenfield at the time, we were brownfield, which just means to say I buy an existing chip fab or office building and I try to kind of force it into play this role. In the early days of IT, when I was at the University of Texas, we just convert a closet or a room into something. Yep. yep. And mm-hmm. so we're trying to sort our way through this, and it forced innovation, and it forced us to think about things, and it forced us to make these back-end tools because we wanted to win. We knew we could never become an incumbent with these largest buyers who are already happy with our very worthy uh, competitors, who are our competitors today, Mm-hmm. But it forced us to adopt these things, which gave us an opportunity to get in, and 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 now we are. So I would have thought, if you told me a PUE of one two, a one one, the the magic unicorn of one or 0.9 or whatever, but you <laughs> felt the need to write an article in November saying is a great start, 
and as seismic as it has been for this industry and this digital infrastructure that anybody outside of this has no idea what their poo philosophy is, <laughs> um, it's not enough. We need more. And yep. I read the article in particular, one I like, Interglobics Magazine, but in particular, we had a big tsunami hit us recently where one of the largest power providers on earth, certainly in one of the um, most important data center markets on earth, said, hey, guys, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. And uh, and that is we don't have any more power to give you. And that was a huge seismic event yep. for us. So you wrote this article. Can you describe what it was that you wrote about and why it's important? Yeah. Um, if you think about everything you just mentioned, it's a forcing function. Forcing function in business, right? That, that like with PUE, it started going into the RFPs. There's a requirement. You right. had to have a PUE and there's going to be a the multiplier. You need to drive that down. If you don't, you're going to take the hit. Right. Right. So there, there was a behavior change. But if you look at PUE and the adoption over time, it was like a decade. And the green grid uh, was the one that actually uh, Christian donated that to the green grid and said, drive it forward. Mm -hmm. So because um, he was on the board and, and things of green grid, I was on the advisory council on green grid with a number of other people. And if you look at what happened with PUE, that impact because they formalized it, right, standardized it, and they started pushing that. And then the results are <laughs> what we have today. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, PUE measures the right side of the decimal. So when we talk about a PUE of 1.2, right? Because by the way, a PUE of less than one is impossible. Because right. <laughs> if not, you're measuring the wrong thing. Right. Unless you have something that's going to be circular coming back. But hold it for discussion. Right. But the point is, say, a PUE of 1.2, um, right, is good. Like, we should be driving towards the thing. That means I'm only using 20%, right, of a watt to be able to now power one watt of work. Right. Cool. But the challenge is everyone assumes that the one is 100%. It is not 100%. The one is grossly inefficient in a lot of areas. So this is this is what I think is a, a dirty little secret of our industry is we don't measure this. We measure PUE and it drove the behavior that actually flattened the curve of power consumption over time. That's awesome. But the increase in power has happened over, you know, for the one aspect is, is continued to go. But there's an economic and an ecological impact on this. So, for example, I, um, in my deployments at eBay and Sun and at Uber, we built zones. All right. And those zones were basically, you know, a, a five to 10 megawatt block with 576 racks with a certain average, you know, density per cabinet, et cetera. And we said, okay, we're going to take this. We're going to ramp it over time. And then we're going to have a steady flow. Then we're going to do tech refreshes over the period of time, right? And so we'll know exactly what that consumption is. Now, my team owned the data center contracts, right? At eBay, we built our own data centers. But we also owned the hardware. And at Uber, we designed our own hardware. We owned the network. So we owned all the aspects. The best we could ever get on utilization of the power contract. Okay, so the data center. Mm -hmm. They would allocate 10 megawatts. Best we would use is six. Hmm. That means 40% of the capacity that is allocated to us on a dedicated nature because in the RFP we said, nope, we're special. Nobody can share this. That's our power. Suddenly, 40% of that capacity is never used at any moment over a five, seven, or 10-year contract. 
it's like having 40% of a hotel never rented. No one ever stays in that hotel. Mm -hmm. They're making money because you're still paying for the 10 megawatts, but it's grossly inefficient when it comes down to it. And then you think about, I own the stack. So we could tune, right, the system. But now think of the ones that only own the data center. They're at the mercy of, right, the, the decisions above them. And then you think about how are the contracts done? They're through the procurement teams. The procurement teams are going back and get the best deal, right, for the most resiliency for their client, right, for their for their company. So we have all these behaviors that are actually driving that. Now, the reason I put this together is that we are in a unique situation in the industry right now. As you mentioned, the largest data center market in the world is Loudoun County, mm -hmm. Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's 2,000 megawatts allocated. That's two gigawatts of capacity allocated just within that data center alley. They're out of power. Now, whether it's you know uh, rights to be able to get transmission lines or generation, or whatever it is, there's a reason that they can't get more power to the data center providers for a minimum of two years, most likely up to five. That's an economic like killer. <laughs> right. What's happening? People are going to other parts of the, the country and the world because they can't get power in Loudoun County. Okay. But if you back up and look at the real big picture of it, today, there's 2,000 megawatts allocated to all these data center players. They only use 1,200 consistently. There's 800 megawatts of capacity that is never used in Loudoun County. Now, people say, well, that's why would we do that, et cetera. It's because we don't measure the right thing. Why do we have those things? It's what I explained before. You have all of these RFP processes that drive a dedicated power block to a customer that's theirs for a certain period of time. Now, if they are lower, lower utilization, the colos, they can't do anything. Mm -hmm. They're contractually obligated to allocate that power without sharing it with other people. Right, so at the mercy of the tenant behavior. They're at the mercy of the tenant contract, right, that was signed to be able to do that. Now, a lot of people have figured out creative ways to do it, but the result is the same. Across all these different data center providers, the tenant result results in 800 megawatts not used. So what I, I have with power capacity effectiveness is we need to have a measurement that allows us to see this so that we can make a change. PUE exposed the inefficiencies mm -hmm. and it became a competitive advantage. And now there's diminishing return. It's table stakes, right? PCE, lots, man, the debate on LinkedIn was awesome. That was the whole point of the article. <laughs> Let's start debating. Right. Because when PUE came out, I'll show you mine if you show me yours, everybody debated. Right. Great. Make it better. Be better. Have a higher score. Yes. So the result is that everybody starts to do those things. But this, I believe, will start to expose the challenges we have because there's there's a couple elements in this. First is RFPs, procurement, right? They're limited with what they can do. They're usually three to five years behind engineering because they've got a checklist of things that they have to go back and actually do. They align, but you know, I'm going to go back and get you the best deal, best price with the highest resiliency, right? At the lowest cost power, like, you know, everything we can. But then the result is a five to seven year contract that doesn't have the utilization we want. Mm -hmm. So the PCE allows us to be able to say, we're going to hold a, the providers and the users accountable for the result. 
just like the results inside of a data center for PUE, if you have a 60 degrees Fahrenheit temperature in your data center all the time, your PUE is impacted. Right. You don't have containment. Your PUE is impacted. You know, all those things that happened inside that we adjusted, the result was a lower PUE. Now, what's the equivalent for PCE? That means we need to think about allocations of density per rack, SLAs. Why is everything the same SLA? It isn't in cloud. Describe what an SLA is. So a service level agreement means that I will give you a certain amount of time that you're always on. So a 5.9 SLA means I've got like 13 seconds or something a year, right? That I can actually have down, <clears throat> right? okay? And so, but in cloud, they basically have abstracted that away that the architecture takes advantage of multiple lower SLA locations to create a higher resilient application. Why? Because they say, I've got five of these. They're all 2.9 SLA. I can have up to 7.3 hours of downtime a, a month. But if that goes down, I have five more. So the point is you, you've, you've moved the resiliency up a layer in software. The problem in data centers is we have not. Mm. We are assuming every data center is the same. Everything needs to have 5.9 SLA, right? And it has to have dedicated power. And then we get this behavior. I am curious, though, and I resonate, by the way, before I ask you this challenging question, I resonate with the um, um, the idea to be able to do this sort of virtualization concept that you have, which is to say not every critical load or watt of power that I'm providing for a customer is the watt I'm providing for the 9-11 system for the local sheriff's department has a different resiliency quota than maybe the burst up watt for somebody during tax season or something. I, I don't know. The tax people mm -hmm. can get mad at me, but right there's <laughs> there are different degrees of um, of risk. This one for sure, we would all agree. If our child is making a nine one one call, that system needs to be up, dedicated for sure. Yep. But not everything has the same risk profile, um, et cetera. I think it was Amazon who, <clears throat> I might be wrong, but I think it was their um, early risk model, which is this triune, you know, they they started with the, uh, I, I'm not going to have all of my production in a metropolitan area if I can in a single data center. I'm going to distribute it across sure. this three-legged stool so I can lose any one leg so long as they're in this latency ring and, and I'm good. And Zones. Zones, yep. yeah. Availability zones, yep. yes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, more and more Google, um, I have heard, does a lot of this where they build their own infrastructure and they do these other things. So mm -hmm. I love that idea. I love all of that. The challenge that we have is when I talk to the Dean Nelson pre-current role five years ago, who has... Sure. All these years of experience at Sun and eBay and other stops along the way that feels like he's representing his constituency to to, to the to the procurement people, the Sarah Kellers mm -hmm. of the world or whatever, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to persuade them. This reminds me of the ashray arguments we used to have, which, by the way, for the record, a big guy like me loves 60-degree cold aisles. I, I can go <laughs> in the summertime, lean up against those cabinets. I love it. But um, it's a hard slog to persuade this kind of change. You know who yeah. would love it 
is the shareholders of my organization. We're privately owned by Blackstone. We've been a public company. Mm -hmm. I'm employee number 32 at this company. We're a multi, multi, multi billion dollar organization. To be able to go to them and say, hey, for me to provide two megawatts of capacity to one of my customers is not going to take me 7.8 megawatts of infrastructure. I can do it with three. They would do it all day long. And to be able to pass on the savings yep. that I realized between almost eight and three megawatts, we split it with our customer all day long. Problem is, it's not an engineering problem, really. It's a nope. it's a philosophical problem. And I'll bet you without naming names, let's not do this now. We've named a lot of names. Let's not name any names. I'll bet you people in your climate accord and in other places are on that list who haven't yet relaxed um, the procurement process by which they're willing to um, oversubscribe some or all. And that mm -hmm. might be because it's really hard to determine what of their infrastructure can needs to be tighter or looser. I don't know, but it is a yeah. challenge. So if I'm sitting across the table from you and I'm trying to persuade you earnestly and economically to do this, how am I going to, how am I going to do that? How am I going to catch your attention? So there's um, a couple things here to touch okay. on. Uh, there has to be a forcing function. So why did we adjust designs? Because it was too expensive. In the end of it, the cost per kilowatt was too high. Sure. So we had two N, right? Yeah. Then it went down to other architectures went down and then we got an N plus one, you know, right. or, a, or a four makes three. Yeah. So these designs basically said, I'm going to drive the unit cost back down. That was forced by the customer. Bigger buyers are saying, I have to have a lower cost. So something has to give, right? right? Now, um, again, the procurement team is at a disadvantage because they're given the elements that they need to go back and drive. So if you can now align the forcing functions, you can now say, I need to get to a lower cost, but I will compromise on SLA. Because mm -hmm. by the way, every one of the companies that I work for had multiple SLAs in their application stack. Here's the difference. That offering was never available at a colo. Mm. I had one product. That's it. Okay, so if there's a forcing function coming down, and I will tell you without naming names, I saw an RFP from a hyperscaler that asked for 5.9 and a 2.9. Wow. So the behavior is starting because in the end of it, first off, they need to get more capacity. They're constrained in markets. There's another forcing function. Where can I get it? Well, I can unlock stranded capacity by getting a lower SLA. The lower SLA means that that capacity can be turned down if I get a power contention issue. Okay. What happens? It's 40% cheaper. Done. Right. So right. that's there's a forcing function. When we start to align the economics to it, the technology will adjust. You're totally right. This is not an engineering problem. We've all figured out ways in which we can design data centers better, operate them with higher resiliency. The problem is that the input is that that thing can never go down. Right. That's BS. All of it can Absolutely. never go down. Right. And we would right. agree all of it can't go down, but some parts of it. Yeah. This is exactly why you have on-demand, reserved, and spot instances on cloud. Mm. On-demand is I will always get what I need when I need it. I'll just pay a higher price. Mm -hmm. Reserved is that's mine. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use it when I need it. Spot is I'll use it when it's available. And when it isn't, it'll go away mm -hmm. and I will use something else. It happens all day, every day on cloud. Multiple SLAs in infrastructure itself. That ties from the data center to the compute to the network. All those pieces fit together. Our problem is in the data center industry, we have not evolved 
into a multi-product offering. We have a data center with an availability and everyone is the same. Mm. By the way, that reminds me of virtualization on servers. Sure. We had a server. That's my server. I can't share that with anybody. All of noisy neighbors, that's going to impact my application. No, no, no. Mine, mine, mine. I'm special. Uh-uh. Virtualization, right? Containerization, et cetera. The whole point is I'm carving up a physical asset into a bunch of virtual assets. Those assets now have different SLAs. That allows you to be able to now say, prioritize workload, prioritize availability for each of the different types of, of things that are on it. Right. That is a standard architecture in in every one of these deployments, when you talk about zones and regions, they create zones because now they can say, I write to three zones at once. I lose one. I, it doesn't matter. No data loss. Right. Because I have three. Right. right. So that means that you can have three two nine SLA zones that will give you a five nine SLA performance for the application. Right. Now tie this back to the 800 megawatts that's wasted. Power capacity effectiveness is basically how much power of capacity have I built? How much do I use? It's just simply that. Just like with PUE, what's the stuff for IT? What's the stuff for facilities? So for power capacity effectiveness, it now says, I built a 12 megawatt data center, 12 and a half megawatts. I can only use 10 because two and a half is for redundancy. Mm -hmm. And they're using five. I'm using less than 50% of the power I built. Okay, well, the 10 megawatt is a 5.9 SLA. They're only utilizing it 50% of the time. Sorry, or 50% of the capacity at any time. Right. So if I oversubscribed and I sold all 12 and a half and they used it 50% of the time, okay, well, I'm using 6.75 watts, megawatts. I'm still under 10. If I oversubscribe at 15, <laughs> I'm using seven and a half. And if I get to the point where I have users that are actually using more, I shut down the two nines to protect the fives. The whole point here is we do this in compute, storage, network every day, all day, right? There is a precedent already set. It is a standard design principle that is everywhere. We're just not applying it in data centers. So again, the forcing function will get us to that. And things like the hyperscale RFP that's requiring, right, two SLAs right. will now allow the colo and the, the, the procurement teams to come up with a better answer, right. more innovative answer on how to serve that need and lower that price. Well, economics for sure will drive it. And I, I know organizations like I, like I just can't imagine anybody um, in our organization either wouldn't develop the tool or hasn't already developed, wouldn't be interested in it. The like our, you know, the people who write the checks in our organizations are going to demand this. It's not just the, um, if the oper if we're given the freedom to do that, it's not, uh, yeah, obviously, but there's a, also a philosophical, <clears throat> and that is, I'm curious how you would help persuade people about this, not just in the procurement, but many times those engineers, um, to go to, to somebody who's going to come to us and buy power. If I tell them, look, I'm at, um, you know, they're going to ask for a report. To what degree are you oversubscribed if we were to follow mm -hmm. the PCE? And if I told them, look, I'm at a, um, I'm at an 80 or 90% subscription rate. Now, if you're, so, so I've got this 10% and it oversubscribed that's actually like a 35 or 40% runway. Today, 
they're really reluctant to do that. Like that, that feels like um, one of the things, mm-hmm. if somebody loves your operational maturity and, you know, they start doing business sure. with you, you know this from your days of doing this. Once they fall in love with a provider, they just don't want to change if they don't have to. If the economics makes sense and they've got the operational maturity to change environments is such, to change the people you sure. work with is such an obstacle. But if I think you're at 60, 70, 80% at that campus, oversubscription or not, they're really reluctant. And so for an operator like us, like we get anxious about that. Like, how do we want, I want to make sure that I've always got, I mean, I'd love to say, you want to buy the whole data hall, buy the whole data hall, I'm all in, or the building for that matter, which is where we're moving to now. But it is a, um, there's a philosophical element there, both for the provider and the consumer to work Mm -hmm. through, like what's, what is the subscription level we're willing to accept as it impacts growth? I don't know how we pers- how do we change that? Yeah, I, I we got to break, um, uh, I guess a legacy thinking, which is oversubscription is going to cause failure. Yeah. So um, there's an SLA for a reason. Five nine SLAs or six nine SLAs are going to be the ones that are priority. Right. You will shed the lower SLAs to protect the higher SLAs. So it all comes down to contractually, I'm going to give you 5.9 SLA. I'm going to oversubscribe. I'm at risk in managing that, right? Mm-hmm. But now you say the other clients that are on the other side, like the software we do at Cato is really just saying we have the teeth. We have the you know the intelligent power switching to be able to go say, we're going to now give a grace period and shut down those racks mm-hmm. to protect the 5.9. By contract, mm. because they signed up for a lower SLA, and we will enforce the SLA if we have a power contention issue, because they're getting a price reduction. You're paying forty percent less, you're going to get hit, right? right? And there's a ton of workloads that can take advantage of that. And by the way, what's what's kind of fun for me is uh, Cato Digital, right? My company right now, mm-hmm. we've actually pivoted, and we're actually turning up bare metal as a client. We only need a two nine SLA. We're enforcing the SLA on ourselves. Wow. So now we're going into Colos, right? We've turned up already because we've aligned the SLA with our customers. The ones that use the bare metal platform are buying a 2.9 SLA from us. Great for that compute. So that means that we have full control at the node level or the rack level to enforce the SLA, which means that the Colos we're working with can oversubscribe and sell us capacity, right? Or partner with us, the capacity they will never use. That drives right towards PCE. Where do you have pockets of stranded power? Great. I want to fill them in with bare metal. I will take a 2.9 SLA. I will enforce it on myself. That's going to prove out to the world this is absolutely viable. Right? And from an economic standpoint, the margins and opportunity with being able to take advantage of that, the costs all go down for bare metal. So there's this is a real world thing where we're actually applying this to ourselves <laughs> to, to drive the behavior across the board. Well, we have a few minutes left, and I want to circle this back. So first of all, it's a fascinating conversation. I I love to see where it goes. If we want to circle this back to where we kind of started with community, infrastructure, all of these things, it's my opinion, my guests have heard, or my uh, audience has heard this many times, me say, we, we develop community in circles. We develop community sitting across like this, um, we, we don't, um, and if we're going to change anything, we're going to need to do it in community, whether it was a pub in Boston in the later 1700s or, um, you know, at a, at a 
Christian's living room, which by the way, that's pretty <laughs> bold. That's kind of a vulgar display of power to say for you to convince him about your <laughs> band of pirates, you're going to show up at his house to have a conversation. I, I need to talk to Christian sometime. That'd be pretty funny to hear how that yeah. works. So you get this call from Dean and you agree to it. Um, <laughs> But it is, let's bring it back to sort of community and and how we collaborate to have honest discussions, even if it's not everything that you're envisioning right now, but how do we get, you know, mm-hmm. we've got to eat on our way to Nirvana, right? So while we're on this journey, how do we do that? So how would you bring us back and kind of close out our conversation to that idea of collaboration and community in this area? Um, I think it goes back to the people again. You know, we have a we have a professional association of the builders of the digital age. We're uniting them on the causes. Um, this allows them to leave their companies at the door and basically bring their experience and their creativity right uh, to the conversation. Uh, that's where the Climate Accord was born. That's where a lot of the things that we're doing was born because it's about the people that are going to go back and make the decisions and implement and do the things that we're talking about. Um, but the alignment of that the debate, like you said, if you have not arguments, you have constructive debate Mm -hmm. to challenge the status quo or the assumptions around how things have been done, you will come up with a better answer. And the more people with the more diverse background, diversity of thought, diversity of experience, uh, the better, the better the answer. You just, you have a broader thing. It's not an echo chamber with a lot of people that think exactly the same thing. It's literally... How do we go back and take this and come up with the right answer that we are we are aligned on? That's the climate accord, right? right? That's the other stuff we're doing with diversity and inclusion, the education program, right, and technology that's going to enable sustainability acceleration. So I, I think that it really goes down to everybody in our industry should be part of the community mm-hmm. because there's an internal community at your company, there's your own personal network that you have. But then there's these other organizations, you know, that that you're participating in. Um, but we've created and fostered, I guess, a, a what I believe is a is a very um, functional and uh, impactful community of people that care, mm. that actually have decision authority to go back and do things, executive level all the way down to the the techs on the floor, like I was. Right. 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 So how do you how do you get everybody involved to be part of the bigger movements in it and actually have a a place where they belong. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, you know, I, this is why I Mesa's was started. Is I wanted to get my community back together, so I called nine people and I said, "Hey, this is what I'm thinking about. Should we put it together?" And yeah, and they said, "Let's do it." And it blossomed from there. But that's because we said it's about the people. It's about leaving your companies at the door. It's about focusing on things that we all care about and being very stayed focused and true on those things because they're going to make an impact to it. So I. You know, like I, take take Cato. I'm going after scope three: circular economy equipment with wasted power in data centers and clean energy gets us to carbon-free compute. Mm. That's one of the most difficult things to solve. Right. But we're tackling it all aligned with the Climate Accords mission, right? The vision of what we're trying to get to. We are taking our components and saying this is what we're contributing. Then you take the Schneiders and all the hyperscale. There's so many companies. When we all are now saying, great, we see where we're going. Here's what we're doing. Bang, 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 bang. It just compounds the impact. So many opportunities come from it. So I would say that for anybody who's listening, who's first off interested in the industry itself, we have scholarship programs if you're not in. 
please go look at imasis.org slash scholarships. <laughs> we have more money than scholarship applicants, so please come in. Secondly, those who are in our industry, at any level, at any tenure, join the community. Because you're going to find a group of people that uh, are very similar when it comes down to where they are. And then other mentors and influencers that are going to be able to provide input. But regardless, you're going to be sitting in a room having a discussion that's meaningful that you can provide actually input to. That's the way we do our, our meetings. Well, Dean, I think that's a great spot to pause. Thank you for coming on the show. If um, So we'll make sure we have links to iMasons and Cato and the things we talked about today. If people wanted to hear more or be notified when you publish mm -hmm. or you comment, where's the best place for them to learn about that? Um, so iMasons.org okay. uh, is for the community itself. Right. Um, also climateaccord.org okay. is the is the iMasons Climate Accord. Right. Uh, lots of content that goes in there. Follow us on LinkedIn. Uh, there's content going out all over the place. So from an iMason standpoint, those are really three avenues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've got a, a platform that people can participate in within the work groups and committees and that type of thing. But get involved with the community. Right. On the Cato side, Cato.digital, take a look at uh, what we're doing. We're uh, building out. I, I, I have a feeling this is, is the thing in my career that could have the most impact from a technical infrastructure standpoint because we're going after scope three. All right. Like it's... I, I'm so excited about that. But go to go to Cato.digital, uh, check it out. You can also reach me at dean at Cato.digital or dean at imasons.org. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming on today. I also am going to see if I can find a link that I can put in there so people understand what we mean when we say scope one, scope two, scope three, so they know a mm -hmm. little bit of the background. We didn't dive into that today, but we'll give them a little bit of homework. Dean Nelson, thanks for coming on the QTS experience. We appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, David. Our great pleasure. And if you like the show, please click the like button. And if you loved it, subscribe. We'll see you next time on the QTS Experience, everybody. Take care.